Hashtag murder may contain explicit and disturbing material and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hashtag murder. <laughs> I'm Scar. And I'm not Dustin. <laughs> You're not. No. Thank, uh, thank you, Dusty Buns, for filling in for me, though, so I, I could uh, have some time away. Yeah. He did a great job. He was hilarious. I popped his podcast cherry. You did. <laughs> he was a good stand-in for making fun of you, um, for me. <laughs> That's true. Uh, he likes to make fun of our, my mathing skills. Math. <laughs> Math. Uh, so how you been? Um, getting better. Getting yeah. better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you do? Tell them what you did. Uh, okay, we. <laughs> I may have impulsively rescued a kitten. Ah! Oh my good. Which is a big scar move. Would you like to hear the story? Yeah. Because it's a big scar move. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Mallory, who I work with, you know, yeah. lovely, lovely lady, hubcap for those of you who know she who she is. <laughs> okay. Um, she was scrolling Facebook, and this lady was trying to get rid of these four week old kittens because she. I don't know. I don't know. Understand the story with it. We're not going to say anything bad about this lady, but she gave us the impression she couldn't take care of the kittens. Um, so were Mal- they her own cat's kittens? I or did she just find them? I think they were her own cat's kittens. Oh, okay. but we don't know where Mama Cat was. I don't. I have no idea. Oh, okay. It's very strange. Very strange. Yeah. Uh, so Mallory went over there, and the lady just kept emphasizing that they hadn't eaten yet, and so Mallory like picked that up as I can't afford food for the kittens. Um. So she's like, um, I'll take both these kittens because she went over there just to get. One kitten for me. Yeah. Uno kitten. <laughs> so yeah. Um. The uh. So Mallory has the sister to my cat, who's a little boy, oh. who we named Newt. Newt. After Newt's commander. Oh. Who that- is a Harry Potter character? Ah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say Fig Newton, cause that's cute. I. That's his nickname. Figgy. My little Fig Newton. Fig Newt. Oh mm-hmm. my god, it's too much. I can't. I love it. Yep, he's a whopping 13 ounces. Oh. He's a little ginger baby. We will share a photo of him on the pod. Yeah. He's so damn cute. He's just a little ball of fluff. He literally is a <laughs> ball of fluff. And Duck thinks he's a chew toy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're going to work on that. Um, And Katniss just keeps hissing at him, but she'll be fine in a couple weeks. She tolerates Duck now. Yeah. Ish. She's very... um. Ducks is spaz, so... You know, <laughs> and Candace is hard to please. She's very hard to please. <laughs> She's got only child syndrome so bad. She does. If y'all... I feel like if y'all left the apartment, she'd be fine. She could just live there by herself. And... No, she's a needy bitch. <laughs> yeah? Yes. Oh. She, like, every morning when we wake up um, and, like, I start working, she rolls over on her back and does the kitty thing where she wants attention. Oh. And then I have to pick her up and she sleeps in my lap for, like, an hour and a half. What? Every day. Oh, I thought she was, like lemon to where like if i leave the house and i come back she's like mad that i'm back no she loves it like and uh every night she sleeps across whitney's neck or in whitney's boobs oh which is where newt has been napping lately because he's a little baby and he has to stay warm and she she ain't happy about that shit oh what a sweetie pie Mm -hmm. katniss is like those are my boobs (laughs) this is bullshit yeah uh and he peed on your shirt he did pee on my shirt i had to borrow one of scarlet's i was on the way here and i was like what's that smell (laughs) and i rolled down the window and it didn't get any better didn't get any better i was like oh it's me (laughs) new peed on me oh he can't help it he's just a little baby oh my god I love it so much. Mm-hmm. I love it. Oh, uh, and he eats. Um, we, we figured out that he likes to be spoon-fed his food. He will oh. not eat it off a plate. What a he little turkey. He wants to turkey. be spoon-fed. <laughs> um, and we still have to bottle feed him like formula for a couple weeks. Oh. Um, he does not like being bottle-fed either. So you have to squeeze the little milk onto, onto the spoon. Onto a spoon. Yeah, so right now I <laughs> scoop some food in there, squeeze it on top of the food, and then he uh, eats it. But he uh, thinks that the spoon is an enemy. So he bites the shit out of the spoon and, like, growls at it. Do you have one of those, like, little baby spoons that are, like, plasticky at the end? No, I have to go get one because all we have is metal spoons because we don't have no children. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, no turn in our house. No. So we have to go get some uh, baby spoons. Oh. But he, he's a sweet little nugget. What a sweetie. I love, I love this. Mm-hmm. I love it. But yeah, um, Mallory, uh, Nate, if you, if you listen to the pod, you can skip forward two minutes. She, <laughs> she got home. She's like, all right, I'm going to tell Nate that I rescued both the kittens and that you're taking one and picking one out and we're going to find a home for the other one. But secretly, I'm going to hope he lets me keep it. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, we're keeping it. Yep. So she already she, named it. She named it. Her name is uh, Myrtle Metheny. Myrtle Metheny. Shout oh. out to Sugar, one of our favorite <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious. I love it. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy. I'm yep. so happy for baby Newt. But I have a very special case for you today. <gasps> I'm really excited. Dustin's going to love this one because there's like dates oh. and um, some math in there. Okay. He's going to be so excited. He's going to be proud of you. He's going to be so proud. <laughs> Well, who are we talking about? We are going back in the time machine oh. to the Prohibition area. Oh. And not area. Why did I say that? Prohibition era. <laughs> Prohibition area. Prohibition. <laughs> uh, yay. Okay. Have you been to the Prohibition Museum in Savannah? I have. That place is the bomb. It was really cool. Um, And here's the thing. So we went, I believe we went on a Sunday mm-hmm. and they have that bar set up yeah, in and the you get middle a free of drink. it. It was closed because oh, it was Sunday. because it was Sunday. We went there and um, it's it was so much fun. <laughs> Talk Whitney about loved prohibition. It. I've never drink like had to drink a PBR during a museum visit. <laughs> it was ama- It was the best experience of my life. Yeah, it was really neat. So if anyone's in the Savannah area or Charleston, or area, Charleston, it's only like an hour and a half drive. You yeah. should go down to the Prohibition Museum in Savannah. Yeah, and it's in the middle of that little shopping and like oh sorry um and food and area. Ton, There's a lot of stuff of, to do. Yeah, but yeah, okay, cool. Let's do it. So. We are talking today about Catherine and George Kelly, a.k.a. Machine Gun Kelly. Oh. The OG Machine Gun Kelly, not the douchebag that thinks he's a pop singer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I saw him in concert once. Did you really? Yeah, in Louisville. Louisville. I went with Juan. Hi, Juan. <laughs> okay. So, Catherine Kelly was born Cleo Liar May Brooks on March 18th, 1904 in Saltillo, Mississippi. Cleo. Cleo. And she changed it to Catherine? Keep Cleo. Well, she liked Catherine. She thought it was more distinguished. Oh. She was, yep. Okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. So, this town, I looked it up, it's like teeny, teeny, teeny. Okay. Uh, Back in 2020, it had a population less than 5,000. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is small. So, at the time when Catherine was born, the town only had a few hundred people, and it was mostly like farmland. So, it's basically small farm town. Okay. Catherine's parents, James and Aura Brooks, were hardworking farmers that spent most of the day working on the family farm and just kind of like scraping it by to provide for the family. All right. At a really young age, Catherine became aware just about how bad her family's financial situation was, and it was then that she decided she wanted more for herself and she would daydream about being one of the rich city ladies hey, who could do whatever they wanted because they had a lot of money. Yeah. All right. So she was still a little young schoolgirl when she had opted to change her name from Cleo to Catherine. Uh, she wanted to sound more sophisticated. Okay. I'm also impressed that her parents let her do that. Yeah. At such a young age. Yeah. It was, she was like <laughs> eight or nine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, when she was nine years old, Catherine's family moved farther into farm town to Coleman, Texas. Coleman was still a farm town, but, like, significantly larger than Saltillo. So Catherine was actually excited about this move since she was tired of living in such a small town. She's going to the big city. Well, she thinks it's the big city. (laughs) Yeah, to her, everything's big. Yep. Okay. So shortly after the move to Coleman, Catherine's parents got divorced. uh, And it was pretty scandalous at the time because it wasn't very common for people to just, like, get up and get divorced when they weren't happy. Yeah, that's true. You got to work it out. God forbid you get a divorce because you're not happy or your husband's beating you. Literally, God forbid. He said it. He said it. (laughs) Okay. Catherine's mom, Aura, pushed through and wanted to be strong for her daughter during the trying time, so she found a job as a hotel manager where it came with free room and board. Oh. So she and Catherine were able to have a place to stay while she was still making money. Okay. Cool. Which is pretty That's good. a good gig. It reminds me of uh, The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody, because <laughs> their mom was the hotel singer, and they lived in that suite for that free. That fancy-ass hotel? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Catherine loved hotel living, because she got to meet so like many different and like affluent people that she didn't have the privilege of meeting while living that farm life. Yeah. I love it. Dustin knows. Oh, you love some hotels. I 
fucking love, love hotels. She <laughs> loves hotels. I, I would probably live in a hotel if I could. I love it so much. Uh, okay, sorry, keep going. The hotel guests weren't exactly as happy to chat with Catherine, uh, though, since they saw her and her mother as just being, quote, the help. Uh, they and were it, beneath them. Yeah. Okay. And she's probably just this excited little girl that's, like, so happy to meet new people and rich people and all that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, but this just made Catherine even more motivated to do better than her parents did. All right. So she took this and ran with it. Yeah. Okay. Catherine dropped out of school after the seventh grade, deciding that she didn't really need an education or to be smart, since all the rich ladies she knew weren't any of those things, and she didn't deem it important. Okay. Um, all right. Yep. Well, she's young. Okay. You're getting some foreshadowing into Catherine's personality <laughs> Oh, here. no. Okay. But she actually is wicked smart, which oh. we will come to learn. Oh, all right. Less than a year later, Catherine was on a trip visiting some family in Oklahoma, where she meets 16-year-old pastor's son, Lonnie Fry. Oh. The two were instantly inseparable and got married soon after meeting. Shortly after this, they had their daughter, Pauline. Oh, okay. The preacher's son. Preacher's son, and now we got a preacher's son's daughter. Okay. And a baby. And a baby. All right. Lonnie was a day laborer and worked really long hours trying to scrounge up any cash he could to support his new wife and new baby girl. And since it was weighing heavily on the marriage... Since, you know, Catherine, again, wanted more than just to be a poor farmer's wife. Yeah. So she wanted more for herself originally, got head over heroes in love with Lonnie, and now she's like, fuck, I'm stuck again. Oh. Uh, yeah. But not for long. Stuck in a rut. Because the couple ended up divorcing after just two years, and Catherine took full custody of Pauline. Okay. All right. That's not surprising. No. Not okay. at all. Uh, she ended up moving back in with her mother in the hotel where her mother still worked. At this time, Catherine would have been around, like, 16, 17 Okay. And the Roaring Twenties oh were just my. beginning to heat up in the U.S. Oh, my. You hear that, Dustin? We are in the 1920s. <laughs> and she is 16 or 17. All right. So, the entire nation was hyping up the lifestyle of flapper girls who didn't follow the typical, like, gender norm of dressing conservatively. Oh, yeah, I know you're excited. I've, and wore very revealing skirts and shorts. Love a good flapper. I love mm -hmm. it. I love it so much. This made Catherine feel even more suffocated in her small hotel town and she wanted to get the fuck out yeah she wants to go live the flapper life she's like i want to make money i want to be a rich bitch <laughs> and i'm tired of this poor bitch shit yeah okay all right so after a few years of living back in coleman Catherine and pauline set out for a new life in oklahoma city where she started her partying lifestyle and opened up a beauty salon in the room she rented to support herself and pauline Oh, which is, that's bad bitch move. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonder where she learned that. Hair stuff? Hair stuff? Um, I mean, she probably learned it herself, like doing it to herself. Uh, okay. All right. Because back then you weren't doing anything fancy to people's hair. It was all the same style. That's very true. Yeah. So as long as she could do it to herself, she could probably do it to somebody else. And the flappers, they liked the boy cut. Mm -hmm. They liked your hair. Yeah, they liked my hair. Yeah. Well, a little longer, but yes. Yeah. Okay. So Catherine wasn't made for working full-time jobs and scraping it by. Same. <laughs> So she married shortly after getting to Oklahoma City with the hopes that her new mans would help support herself and Pauline. But this was short-lived and ended in divorce. Oh, okay. So we're now on divorce number two. <sighs> and she's what, still a teenager? Um, She's a little older because Pauline would have been like six, seven, eight at that time. So oh, she's okay. in her early 20s. Okay. All right. So at this time, the divorce and crime rate in the U.S. continued to skyrocket. And what could possibly be the blame for all of this? I don't know. Well, it's obviously alcohol. <laughs> so the 18th Amendment came out on January 16th, 1919, banning alcohol and all sales of it in the U.S. That's bonkers. But whenever you ban something, all people are going to want to do is, is get, do, it, do more. it more. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And they're going to do it anyway. I mean, there's yeah. plenty of laws that people break because they're just going to do it anyway. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you tell them no. Yeah. Like the devil's lettuce. <laughs> Yeah. You think that it's stops anybody? Yeah. No, there are ways. And that's just ways to make for people to like get rich on there being a law about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yep. God. Okay. So at this time, secret jazz clubs and speakeasies opened to give the public their alcoholic needs. Yeah. And Catherine frequented them often. Yes. I bet she I don't think she would have been a white claw in whipped vodka girl though. <laughs> claw and whipped. No, she's not a clown whip girl. No. I bet she was like one of those like fancy drinks, like the French 75 or like those ones. 
Yeah. Um, I love a good speakeasy. You know, there is a speakeasy in shit. Cincinnati. And oh. it's and it is disguised as a video store. That's cool. And you have to you walk in and you the guy tells you like a little riddle and then you pull that specific VHS down from the shelf and then the door spins and then you go in. That's pretty cool. I know, isn't it neat? We went to a speakeasy um when we were on our honeymoon in Hawaii. <laughs> There's one in uh-huh. There's one in Honolulu and it's disguised as like a World War II museum. Oh. And then so like it's like it's basically like a first floor like type of museum thing. There's a bunch of stuff there. Yeah. And there's a lady working there and she's like, Hey, the speakeasy is up top. If you know the password, you can go in. The password is Morse code, uh, V for victory, and you knock that on the door. Oh. And that's how you get in. Oh, that's real fun isn't it cool i love that but they like they, they tell you what the password is even if you can't figure it out because they're nice <laughs> yeah but even it was really cool inside there yeah i bet mm-hmm. it was oh that's so fun yeah i love it it was so it was so awesome what a time to be alive mm-hmm. the 1920s so it was at one of these uh you know little speakeasies okay. that she meets a gangster named j.e barnett who wooed her with his personality and his ease when it came to making money okay Catherine was spending all hours of the night getting drunk and doing drugs, and her salon business started suffering because of it. So she started dabbling in sex work to make ends meet. Yeah, well, yeah. It is what it is. Yep. You gotta do what you gotta do early. Sure. And this was just the start of her criminal activity. Oh, boy. All right. A few years after the start of her sex work career, she and the gangster Barnett came up with a little scheme to make some quick money. Ooh, tell me all about it. All right. So Catherine <laughs> would lure a rich John away with the promise of sex to a secluded area. Okay. Once there, she would disappear and Barnett would appear to rob the John at gunpoint. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And the plan was actually running real smooth for a while. And until Catherine got too greedy and picked a mark that was way too close to home, one of her neighbors named Bessie. Ah, uh, yeah. Wait, is Bessie a chick? Bessie's a chick. Oh, okay. Um, so Bessie made really good money working as a stenographer and wore really, really sparkly diamond jewelry that Catherine really wanted for herself. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So this wasn't... Uh... The sex work scheme. This was just, we're going to rob this bitch. We're going to rob this bitch because <laughs> oh, no. I want them diamonds. Oh, God. Okay. Catherine invited Bessie over for dinner and a drive in uh, June 1925. Okay. At some point, Catherine pulled over near the lake saying she thought she had a flat tire. While she got out of the car to, quote, check the tire, while Bessie stayed in the car with a sleeping Pauline, two men jumped out from the bushes and robbed Bessie of everything she had on her person. Oh. Also, what the it's fuck? Your neighbor. Yeah, and he had Pauline in the car. What's wrong with you? Yeah, your baby girl. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, Catherine thought she got away with this plan scot-free until Bessie realized she actually recognized one of the robbers as Barnett. Yeah. And she remembered him being around Catherine very often and hanging out in her room. Yeah. She reported the robbery to the police and found out several other people had also reported similar robberies happening to them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Investigate. Never rob your neighbor. Don't rob your Don't neighbor. Don't do it. It's P- too, P- you're going to get pick, caught. Pick the strangers. <laughs> yeah. Investigators put two and two together and arrested Catherine and Barnett for the robberies. Both were convicted on at least two counts of robbery, but the decision ended up getting appealed for whatever reason. Probably like paperwork or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. Catherine took this as a sign to leave Oklahoma City, so she packed up six-year-old Pauline and they moved back to Coleman, Texas. Do you really need a sign to leave Oklahoma City? The state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma. But she went back to the small town, Coleman. Uh, she should have gone somewhere else. That's true. Yeah. She would have fit in in Florida. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Around this time is when Catherine's mother, Aura, meets and married a rich rancher named Robert Shannon of Paradise, Texas. Okay. Who also had a little side hustle of bootlegging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. And guess what Robert's nickname was? This is what he was well known as. Robert. Bob. Bob the bootlegger. Nope. Robert Boss. Shannon. Oh, the boss. The boss. Okay. Had an isolated farm away from the rest of the town, so it was perfect area for them to elicit the uh, illegal alcohol. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Boss was really eager to get some help from Catherine and Aura to, like, you know, help with the family side hustle, and he was like, hell yeah, I'll take your help. Let's go. Let's grow this company. Let's fucking go. (laughs) Family business. Yeah. So Catherine moved from the farm and became a uh, rum runner for Shannon. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Have you ever seen the movie Lawless? Yes. With uh, uh, LaBeouf mm-hmm. and um, Tom Hardy? Yes. Hottie McHotterson, Tom Hot- Hardy. Oh, uh, he's a little young <laughs> for you, isn't he? Uh, he is. I still <laughs> love him, though. <laughs> he does have some dad energy. <laughs> 
This is true. He does have uh, dad energy. It's a great movie, though. This is, is what this is reminding me of. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Keep going. She's going to go watch this movie with Dustin later. I am. <laughs> so she used her beauty and glamour to make connections in the bootleg business, and it was booming. Yeah. She's the face of the company. Oh, yeah. Okay. So one of the people she met was a man named Charlie Thorne, who also worked as a bootlegger in the same turf as Catherine. And she teamed up with Charlie, and they got married. Okay. We're on marriage number three. Marriage number three. Okay. Charlie bought Catherine a $30,000 house, cars, jewelry, whatever the fuck she wanted. Yeah. And she finally got what she wanted. A rich husband that would buy her whatever she wanted. Okay. Mm-hmm. Live your best life. Go do uh, it. Catherine, however, not mom of the year, oh. left Pauline on the ranch with her mother and stepfather. Oh. Yeah. Kind of shitty. Yeah. She, she got the life she finally wanted and then did not want to take care of a child anymore. Nope. Yeah. Tales old as time. So, both Catherine and Charlie were hot-tempered and jealous types, and they even, like, threatened to kill each other so often that it was a running joke amongst themselves and their friends. Like, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna fucking kill you. (laughs) I fucking hate you. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) Okay. They pushed through the issues, though, and managed the bootleg business together. Catherine managed the delivery part of the business, while Charlie claimed to be working on the back end of the business. Okay. After about two years into the marriage, Catherine found out that Charlie was cheating on her she was hot pissed. Yeah. Okay. We she all could have seen that coming. She got up. a bad temper. Yeah. So when she got home, she and Charlie fought so terribly that she ended up phoning the police. But when they got to Thorn, they found that Charlie was dead with a bullet to the head. <gasps> oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> oh, no. That escalated. I didn't see that coming. Uh, so she finally did kill him. Yep. Uh, well, maybe. Oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, when okay. investigators searched the home, they found a note written on a typewriter that said, I love my wife. I can't live without her. So I'm ending it all. Oh. Okay. Didn't she give in a Stacy vibes? Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Okay. All right. Keep going. Yep. <laughs> Why do we always do stories on women that kill their husbands? I just noticed <laughs> that. A lot of them are named Catherine. <laughs> they are named Catherine. <laughs> Shit. Okay. So, the only problem here, though, was that Charlie couldn't read or write. Ah, there we How go. How do you type up that note? There we go. It reminds okay. me of Stacy typing up that letter on the, <laughs> the computer. It logged in herself and trying to pass it off as her daughter's. Yes. Mm-hmm. And called herself Mommy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, the police didn't really care to investigate, however, because they didn't find it necessary to investigate the death of a known criminal and bootlegger. Uh-huh. Yep. So, not a lot of legwork went into this case. Yeah, good riddance. Yep, there goes one less criminal we have to take care of. Pretty much. keep an eye on. They're probably like, Catherine, here's a medal of honor. Good job, babe. <laughs> so, at first, the coroner dubbed the death on, that, on an act of self-defense, thinking that Catherine shot him while defending herself, but then a judge ended up ruling the death as a suicide. Yep. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> he didn't want to deal with it. No, no fuck no, that. He didn't care. Everyone else thought the death was suspicious at best, and Charlie left Catherine the equivalent of $300,000 in cash and assets with his death. Wow. In that money or today's money? Today's money. Wow. That's still a lot. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Okay. I don't remember the exact dollar amount it was back then. I just did the, the yeah. math and it made it today's money. Okay. Yep. Cool. So... Catherine returned to her party days being newly single and spent most of her nights at jazz clubs and speakeasies in the Fort Worth, Texas area. All right. She's ready to mingle. She's single and ready to mingle. (laughs) And a murderer. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Catherine was a heavy spender and she supplemented her income going back to her scheme of robbing unsuspecting men by luring them away to secluded areas. Okay. Because getting a job and making your own money would be way too much work. Yep, which is, which is Eileen-like. Very Eileen-like. Hey, this story is making a lot of full circles. Oh, <laughs> okay. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So our girl Catherine also had a hobby of shoplifting and actually got uh, arrested under one of her aliases, Dolores Whitney. Dolores Whitney. Which, Dolores is my abuela's first name. Yeah. And then we all know who Whitney is. <laughs> yeah. The wifey. The wifey. Uh, but her luck prevailed and she got off on charges and some on some paperwork technicality again. And she got to keep the items she stole as well. Oh. Yeah, so she not only does she not have to give the shit back, she didn't face any jail time or anything. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, in 1927, you hear that, Dustin? 1927. Yep. <laughs> Catherine made a trip up to the Leavenworth Prison in Kansas to visit her uncles who were doing time up there. Okay. I guess being in prison and, like, doing illegal shit is just, like, the family business. I yeah. don't know. Runs in the family. And she met and befriended a handsome 32-year-old inmate named George Kelly. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. 
George and Catherine started exchanging letters after he got permission from her uncles to write her, and the two started a little romance with each other, and she thought George was right on her level, unlike her previous ex-husbands. Yeah, they weren't um, they weren't bad enough for her. Oh, that, this, this is a bad boy. <laughs> yeah, he's in jail currently, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> George Kelly Barnes was born July 17th, 1900, and he was from Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. He started uh, getting into trouble in 1917 when he went to Mississippi State University to study agriculture. But he spent most of his time getting into trouble and other shenanigans. Okay. He ended up dropping out of the college to marry a woman named Geneva Ramsey and started working in the bootleg industry. All right. After several run-ins with the local Memphis PD, he and his wife Geneva left and went west to Oklahoma, where he was later sentenced for smuggling alcohol onto a Native American reservation. Oh. Where he was sentenced to three years in prison. Okay. Which is where we are now. All right. George is still in prison, though, and so she started up a relationship with a gangster named Little Steve. Little Steve. Little Steve. <laughs> okay. Who was a bootlegger in the Tulsa and Oklahoma City areas. So he was not in jail. He was not in jail. Okay. No. Okay. George still in jail. Little Steve not. Okay. Which, if I'm a gangster, I don't want my name to be Little Steve. <laughs> That's just personal preference, though. Little Steve. Little Steve. <laughs> okay. So the, stu- the two started working together, and after three years of running business together, they parted ways after Catherine got the sudden news that George was getting out of prison. Yep. I was going to say, mm-hmm. it's about time for old Georgie boy to be out. The two were still writing each other over the years, even while she was dating Steve, and she was giddy about finally being able to meet up with George. Yeah. Catherine told Steve that her friend George needed a job, and they should offer him a job. So she's going with her, or she's getting her side piece a job with the main piece. Yep. Okay. Side piece and the main piece are going to work together now. (laughs) Okay. George and Catherine finally got to meet in person when he made the move to Oklahoma after getting released. So he was literally in for three years. Yeah. They kept him in the whole time. Mm -hmm. Damn. Okay. Cool. Catherine wasn't very good at hiding her feelings for George, but Steve didn't really seem to care too much since George was really good for business. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) He didn't really think there was much going on there besides some flirting. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. George was clean cut and fit and really well with more sophisticated clientele than like the usual bootlegger did. Yeah. So he became known as the nickname Society Bootlegger. Uh, Ooh. Mm -hmm. Okay. He like would sell the liquor straight from a briefcase. That's and, fun. And, like, take the goods straight to the client. He just opens it up. And, and there's just, like, liquor. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, I like that. Things were heating up between George and Catherine, and one day when Steve was out of town on business, George decided to take Catherine on a little dinner date. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I got lost. I was like, wait, who, which one's George? George, All right. George is our bootlegger man. Okay. okay. And little Steve is her, like, Little hus- Steve is her husband. Okay. Um, so... Before they even ordered their food, George proposed to Catherine, and she said yes. Oh, shit. Wait, is she married to little Steve? I don't know if they're married or they're together. Oh, okay. We're going to assume yes. Yeah. So that's husband number four. Okay. (laughs) In case case we got lost. Yeah. (laughs) The two rushed back to little Steve's place where Catherine was living, packed up her stuff hastily, and stole Steve's Cadillac, where they fled to Minnesota. To celebrate their engagement. Wow. So she Mm -hmm. just dipped out on little Steve. She's like, bye, Steve. I got George now. Okay. So they had several warrants out for their arrest. So they had arranged a hasty wedding with a little paperwork and went back to Texas for a little honeymoon of partying and shopping. All right. In the stolen Cadillac. In the stolen Caddy. (laughs) Okay. They spent a lot of money before getting back into business. Um, And instead of getting back into bootlegging, they actually got together with one of George's friends from prison to start robbing banks. Ah, okay. This oh, is... yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't read these notes. There's a lot going on here. <laughs> so now we're moving on from bootlegging to robbing banks. Yeah. Seems uh, like a, a logical yeah, next move. Very logical. Yeah. Harvey Bailey took George in as a bank robbing apprentice and gave him all the tips and tricks for getting away with scot-free with robberies. Yeah. I mean, who is it? John Mulaney. Yes. He's like, as long as you're not there whenever the police show up, you're, you're... probably getting away with it. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to find you. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, the trick was to pick marks in smaller towns so that the job would get them enough money to make it worthwhile, but not so much attention that the local police would be on guard at the time of the crime. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Nobody thinks bad stuff like that is going to happen in their small town, and that's what Bailey and George were kind of banking on. Yeah. All right. 
Harvey Bailey taught George how to stake out the bank and track business in. So, like, big payroll deposits from local businesses was one of the, like, hot things. Yeah. Okay. So, they would spend a few days staking out their mark to determine what time was the best to rob the bank and get the highest take. The only thing that Bailey and George couldn't agree on was working with women. George did not see any issue working with his new bride on the hits, but Bailey thought women gossip too much and would get them caught. Hey. That's fair. That's, that's a valid point. Fair. <laughs> I like, was going to argue about that, but that's fucking fair. <laughs> You're like, you never believe what we did this weekend. We totally robbed three <laughs> banks. Yeah. <laughs> that checks out. Okay. I feel you, Harvey. I get it. Yeah. Harley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Just kidding. <laughs> George disagreed and thought Catherine was perfect for the job since she was so cunning and intelligent. Yeah. Her typical job during the heist was to manage the getaway vehicle and holding a weapon. She was a fucking good shot. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. She loved her some guns. <laughs> uh, she loved shooting, loved guns, and even gifted her husband his first ever Tommy gun. Uh, A.K.A. Machine Gun. Yeah. Which is how he got the moniker Machine Gun Kelly. Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. Okay. So she helped George perfect his shot practicing at her family's farm and would boast about her husband's reputation as a major gangster as much as she could. Interesting. I didn't even know. I thought he was like just a, I didn't know he had a partner Mm -hmm. in Catherine. Oh, and it's more so he's the partner to Catherine. Oh. She is the brains behind the operation. Interesting. He's just kind of like the muscle. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. All right. Uh, she even went as far to say that he would, uh, quote, mark his heist by signing his name in bullets on the wall. Whoa. Which is definitely not true, but um, <laughs> oh. our girl had a flair for the dramatic. Okay. Yeah. I'll take it. As the uh, gangster era in America was booming, the FBI was trying to rebrand itself after the years of corruption it had gone through. Okay. Still going through corruption. Anyway, when J. J. Edgar Coover finally took over as deputy director in the 1930s, he went to work getting rid of all the corrupted agents, but it was a tough job. Yeah. FDR was president at the time, and he declared war on gangsters in the West. War on gangsters. The war on gangsters. (laughs) You know what's funny? Um, One of the reasons, well, I mean, I can't remember anything, but one of the reasons why I don't really know anything about this case is that gangsters... They just don't do it for me. No? Like gangster stories. I don't know. I've never found them that interesting. I think this is very interesting. This is very interesting. Maybe I'm just reading the wrong stories. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So the public opinion wasn't exactly on their side, though, since they had done a poor job at at best with recent cases they worked on. They were pretty much over-promising and then under-delivering. Yeah. Never do that. No. Aim aim low. Avoid disappointment. Yes. (laughs) During the 1930s, bank robbing was not as promising as it has been in previous years due to the banks uh, not holding enough cash on hand. Uh. So the Kelly couple took a different method of making money, and this one is even more illegal than robbing banks. Ooh, okay. They found out that kidnapping was much more financially sound than robbing banks. (laughs) And giving a ransom? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Since family members would typically pay up whatever it costs to get their loved ones back. Yeah. And they didn't really think twice about getting caught since the FBI had such a poor reputation when it came to solving these cases. Yeah. Speaking of ransom... Have you ever seen Righteous Gemstones? Yeah. I've never seen it before, and we just started watching it last night. Yeah, it's filmed in Charleston. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh my god, I know that place. Yeah, do you know um, where the Citadel Mall is? Yeah. That's where the church is. And there's actually a church there, right? Well, it's a prop church, I think. I don't think it's a real church. Oh. But there's Righteous Gemstones thing on the... And it's where the Sears was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's really good. Yeah, because the old work building was right across from the parking lot from there, and we would watch as they were filming all the time. Shut up! Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah, back in, like, 20... 20- the hub was there. Yeah, the that's wherever I started. Yeah. <laughs> it was right in the parking lot. That's really funny. Uh, okay, keep going. So, in January of 1932, Catherine convinced George to give kidnapping another shot, so he and a former uh, colleague kidnapped a former banker on his way home from work. Okay, so they're not kidnapping children. No, they don't kidnap they're any children. Adult napping. Yes, they're okay. adult napping. Okay. So they uh, left a note for his wife demanding fifty thousand dollars for her husband's safe return and held the man captive for two days. Well. When no money came, the banker was able to convince George to let him go, stating that his wife had no way of putting together that much cash and promised that he would give the money himself and pay the ransom. Oh. Obviously this didn't happen and George didn't get his money, <laughs> and the only good thing that happened is that this banker didn't go to the cops, so at least George got to stay a free man. Oh. For now. Uh, okay. <laughs> Catherine was pissed and took matters into her own hands. She got her hands on a societal magazine, 
which was basically like told her who was the who in the world of the one percenters and more importantly who was most likely to pay up their ransoms that was in a magazine that was in a magazine <laughs> Okay. Well, that didn't actually, it didn't say, yes, I will pay my ransom. Oh. <laughs> it okay. was just like a bit. Like, she was gathering information. She was gathering information. Okay. All right. No, it wasn't in this magazine, like, you know, like at the bottom. If Most likely to pay ransom. That'd be fun, like Superlatives. Yeah. So Catherine picked her mark and got to work on studying the man's schedule and behavior and even got in contact with a crooked cop that she knew, Weatherford. Oh, okay. Catherine called Weatherford and asked him to help if things went sideways during the kidnapping. But in reality, Weatherford was not a crooked cop, but was working undercover as one, and he reported this to the FBI immediately after talking to Catherine. Oh, the old undercover cop. Catherine got got. Damn. Yep. I feel like she should have seen that coming. She should have. She's, she's got, she may not be like book smart, but she seems street smart. She's very street smart. Yeah. Okay. So the Dallas office got involved to protect the would-be victim and Catherine ended up having to call the entire operation off so she wouldn't get caught. Yeah. Which huh. she was smart to do that at least. Yeah. That, yeah. That's so, true. Catherine wasn't going to let that little hiccup stop her from getting her mark though. No. And she was determined to learn from her mistakes. Okay. Our girl, she's, she's fucking determined. She's taking notes. She is. And she's learning. <laughs> she went back through that magazine, narrowed down her list of potential marks, and got to planning. Our girl, Catherine, was determined to make sure that her hubby, Kelly, and herself were set up for life. They wanted to make a million dollars on the first kidnapping. Whoa. That's aiming real high. Real high. A million dollars back then? Even mm-hmm. higher. Holy yep. crap. So Catherine was greedy. Yeah. It didn't matter how much like money or nice things she already had. She just kept wanting more. I want more. I want the more. <laughs> Apparently at this time, it was uh, in 1933, by the way. Okay. Kidnapping was so common, the New York Times and other popular magazines de- dedicated special columns to case updates and such. Oh. And insurance companies even offered kidnap coverage. Wow. Isn't that insane? That's not still a thing, right? No. It might be. I don't know. What? <laughs> probably for like coverage. one probably like one percenters, you know, like yeah. people that are more likely to have their kids kidnapped and like held for ransom. Interesting. Or okay. like uh, like politicians and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So cool. social elitists even started hiring private security companies for themselves and their families to protect themselves from ramping kidnappers in the country. Yeah. So Catherine wasn't deterred by this thought. She saw it as a challenge. She's like, hey, I'm going to do it one way or I'm the gonna other. I'm going to get you. And if you put an obstacle in the way, I'm going to get over it. Yep. <laughs> Catherine was smart and skilled, and she had her husband, Machine Gun Kelly, there to be the muscle in the operation to make sure that it went smoothly. Yeah. All right. Um, I mean, George only got that cool-ass nickname because of Catherine. Otherwise, he'd still be a lower-ranking member in the bootleg industry. Yeah. She was behind it all. Yeah. She started it all. She's the real menace in this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So the FBI had their eyes on Kelly, however. They knew all about his reputation as a sharpshooter accompanying all these criminals on these bank robberies. So they were all starting to keep a close eye on Mr. Kelly. Uh. Not that that meant much to Catherine or George since the FBI wasn't solving jack shit. Uh, well, yeah. Like, yeah. He doesn't. Like, you can watch us. I don't care. Yeah, I'm like, you're not going to do us. What are you going to do? <laughs> okay. Catherine had a whole system worked out, though. She had perfected her studying of the magazine and would look for the perfect marks. It was using this method that she discovered Charles F. Herschel and his recent marriage to a lady named Bernice Slick. Okay. Herschel was an oil guru from Oklahoma, and his new bride was the recent widow of another oil king who left behind a fortune. Ah, okay. So both of these people have money, and they just married each other. Wow. All right. So, perfect target. Yep. Back then, they had around $75 million, which wow. equates today to about $1.5 billion. Holy shit. One billion dollars. <laughs> oh my, that's insane. Okay. So while Catherine was working on her plan, the U.S. government passed the kidnapping law to give FBI jurisdiction over these cases so that they could invite themselves onto any kidnapping case as well as chase offenders over state lines, which wasn't a thing before this. Oh. Because local PD, oh. as we all know, uh-huh. wasn't all keen to be sharing jurisdiction in these cases, and they usually ended in a disaster with the two like different entities having like a dick measuring contest essentially oh yeah we're whipping it out yeah measure yep whoever just got the biggest dick gets the case exactly it's like why can't you just work together to it's like that um 
Fuck, what case God. was that that we just did? Where uh, Robert Hansen, where the Anchorage PD was like, no, we got this. Don't oh, worry. Yeah. Yeah, don't worry about it. We, we only it. have 30 missing women. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> we it's only know control. about two, but it's fine. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. To uh, kind of nix the middleman for info, Hoover created the first crime hotline. Oh. So that anyone could call it with any tips they had for ongoing cases 24-7. And he even had one of these lines installed at his private residence so that he would never have to miss a call or tip. Wow. So anytime that phone rang, he was there. Is this like the first tip line? Like ever? Um, it's probably the first major tip line. Yeah. Okay. Like it may not be the first ever tip line, but it's probably the first like nationwide one. Okay. Cool. So Catherine still didn't give shit. Uh, they were gonna. She can't be. <laughs> She's not gonna let the man get her down. No. <laughs> Catherine uh, was gonna keep on keeping on, no matter what the FBI or local PD was supposedly doing. Yeah. So on the night of July 22nd, Kelly and Al Bates went on the move to get their mark. Around 11:30 p.m., the two guys roll up onto the Urschel residence and expected the couple to be in bed, but instead found them hosting another couple to a game night. Oh, ooh, love a good game night. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep, not the kind of game night you want. Oh, okay. <laughs> yep. So the four of them were sitting out on the Urschel's screened-in porch. But conveniently enough, the Urschel's didn't have a bodyguard at the time, and so Kelly and Bates went to their move. Okay, is it Urschel or Herschel? Urschel. Oh, okay. With a U. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. <laughs> Bernice screamed immediately, seeing the two kidnappers, and Kelly pointed the machine gun at her and said, Shut up. Whoa. Okay. Yep, which is terrifying. He looked over the two men at the table and asked which one was Urschel. Also, he didn't even know his mark. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, your fucking wife would be so pissed. <laughs> if she finds out about this, she's, she's going to be, be livid. Because so they had pictures in that magazine. <laughs> yeah. So neither of the two men would say which one was which. So they took both by gunpoint out of the home. And George told the two wives that if either of them called the cops, both their husbands were as good as dead. It's like... Which ones are actually, they just both point at each other. They're like, <laughs> the Spider-Man meme. This is one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Bernice watched for the vehicle to leave the premises and then called the Oklahoma CDPD, the national hotline Hoover had created, and locked herself in the bedroom just in case. Okay. She's like, whatever, I'm still calling the cops. Yeah. Um, around 2 a.m., J. Edgar Hoover's personal hotline at the home ring, and he got the FBI on the case, stat. Wow. At his home. At his home. He answered that call. <laughs> Wait, does he live in the White House? No, it's his personal house. Oh. I mean, it's probably, like, protected, like, by, oh. you know, FBI agents and shit, but no, he doesn't live in the White House. That's just the president. Oh, I thought he was the president. No, he's, Hoover? The, he's the director of the FBI. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> okay. I got you. Okay. <laughs> FDR is the president. I remember you saying that <laughs> oh my. Uh, oh, I swear I'm listening. <laughs> I oh, do God. remember you saying that. <laughs> okay, keep going. Jesus. Okay, so Kelly and Bates had driven several hundred miles away from Oklahoma City, and Urschel had also identified himself at this point with the hope that the two gunmen would release his friend. Yeah, okay. Bates, uh, though, started to get a little antsy with the way the plan was going. Bates wanted to get rid of the extra hostage and kill him, Oh. but Kelly didn't like killing. Oh. He's a big teddy bear. Huh. Especially not innocent people. So they dropped off the spare hostage out in the middle of BFE and sped off. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Machine Gun Kelly's a softie. He doesn't want to kill somebody if he doesn't have to. With a name like Machine Gun, you'd mm -hmm. think it would be the opposite. opposite. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Kelly, Bates, and Urschel finally arrived at the uh, safe house in Paradise, Texas, where Catherine Kelly was waiting patiently for them. I bet she was standing there with a cigarette in her mouth, looking mm -hmm. hot. <laughs> like, Probably. what took you so long? Yeah. Um, also, the safe house was her parents' house. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Okay. So she arranged an empty bedroom to keep Urschel in, and Catherine's parents agreed to babysit Urschel while George Kelly could get some work done on the farm, and Catherine could take her daughter back to their home in Fort Worth. Wow. Yeah, now She's they got like, the parents involved. Yeah, like, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, can you watch this hostage for me real quick? Could you imagine saying that to Gaylene? So I can take my daughter to our house? <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, she'd probably do it, though. Uh, yeah, she definitely would. <laughs> she, she'd be in on it. I'm going to ask Carolyn if she would babysit a hostage for me. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so when she got to Fort Worth, uh, she got into contact with a detective, Ed Weatherford, who was working undercover as a crooked cop, as oh, we learned before. Yeah. When in reality, the Kellys were one of the couples he was assigned to make contacts with. Yeah. But didn't she already know he was crooked? She does not know he's crooked. 
she doesn't know how that uh, information leaked about oh. like the first mark they were trying to get. She just knew that somebody was on to her. She just didn't yeah. know who. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. All right, cool. So Weatherford wanted to use Catherine as a state's witness to testify against a ton of crooks since she had so many contacts. Okay. And as a woman, she would be more persuasive, like on the... I'm just a lady. I'm just a lady. My husband made me do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm so dumb. Oh, pause. Got a kitten picture. Oh. Oh. He's so snuggly. Oh, it's so funny. He looks like a little lion. Little lion cub. Oh. No, baby. Sorry for that. Uh, quick pause. <laughs> so, Weatherford went by Catherine's home, and she told him that she had just gotten back from a trip to St. Louis, Missouri. She was trying to establish an alibi. Oh. Okay. But since Weatherford didn't know anything about the Urschel kidnappings yet, there wasn't a whole lot he could offer her, so he left after a few minutes of quick conversation. Huh. Okay. But as Weatherford was walking down the driveway to his own car, he noticed that Catherine had a recent newspaper from Oklahoma City laying open on her passenger side seat. Okay. Not smart, Catherine. (laughs) Okay. Which he thought was a little bit weird since she just told him she was in Missouri. Yeah. The FBI gets a little lucky with the next events, which works in favor for poor Urschel, who's just chilling in Paradise, Texas. Yeah, with their parents. With their parents. They're just chatting. Yeah. <laughs> so the field agent back in Oklahoma City that was in charge of the Urschel case was a former colleague and good friend of the chief of police in Fort Worth. So for maybe, like, the actual first time ever, they had, like, a seamless co-agency tax force going on. Huh. With hundreds of cops and agents working together. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the victim was high profile, too, so I'm sure that, you know, that That's helped. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... This made demanding the ransom directly from Bernice Urschel a tad bit difficult since any form of communication they sent to her home would be intercepted by the FBI field agents first. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, after about three days of brainstorming, Catherine came up with a plan that she thought would be best. They were going to force Urschel to reach out to a third party for the money, like a friend who would then reach out to his wife, Bernice. Okay. They're going to telephone. Friend of a friend. Friend of a friend. So, the Kellys moved Urschel to a small shack that a friend owned and kept him blindfolded and his ears plugged so he wouldn't know where he was or where, like, where he was going. Okay. The Kellys told Urschel that they were very disappointed in Bernice for getting the feds involved when they had explicitly told her not to, and now he had to, quote, clean up her mess <sighs> and give them a contact that they could write to with their demands and that that person would be in charge of getting the demands to Bernice. Yeah. I mean, these people, these kidnappers, like, don't call the police. First call is going to be to the, the police. police. <laughs> like, every time. Just plan on that. <laughs> yeah, plan on that happening. <laughs> so, Charles Urschel gave them the name of a guy named John Catlett, and he wrote him a letter with the Kelly's demands. Okay. Catlett reached out to Bernice and asked to meet her at a motel in Oklahoma City. Bernice, her brother-in-law, and a family friend went with her to Catlett at the motel. Okay. Authorities devised a plan after getting a second ransom letter from the kidnappers demanding a ransom of $200,000, which at the time was the highest ransom demand in the U.S. history. Damn. Uh, Equivalent of $4 million today. Wow. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. Yep. Well, hey, he was in that magazine. They knew. They knew he had the money. Yeah. So they were to get the money and place a classified ad in the paper confirming they had the ransom money ready. And we all know that this is Catherine's plan because George is not smart enough for that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Huh. So Catherine then sent out a ransom letter from a random city in Missouri to throw investigators off their scent in Texas. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good call. Uh, Kirkpatrick, Bernice's brother-in-law, took the bag of cash on a train to Kansas City in the observation car. And he was to throw the money out of the train when signaled. Whoa. This is yeah. real convoluted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he has $2 million in a suitcase? In a suitcase. And, and he's, he's going to throw, throw it out, out the of the window. train window. Yep. Okay. When he gets the signal. Okay. Oh, my God. All right. Um, And this is also sad. He, just in case, he wrote a goodbye letter to his wife in case he didn't come back from the ransom delivery and asked Bernice to get this letter to his wife if that were to happen. Goodlit, the family friend of the Urschels, offered to go with Kirkpatrick on the delivery for some more, like, moral support. Yeah. So the two men boarded the 10 p.m. train to Kansas City on July 29th. This is so, like, it's well thought out, but it's also, like, so, so strange. Extravagant. So, <laughs> so 
things weren't going as planned. Of course. Typically, the observation car is the last on the train, which is why the kidnappers asked for them to get to that car specifically. But because of the World's Fair going on there, were two extra passenger cars tacked onto the train, so the car that, that they were in wasn't actually the last one. Oh. Ooh, the World's Fair is cool. Yeah. I would have loved to attended a mm-hmm. World's Fair. But not get murdered by... Uh, well, no. By A.J. Thomas. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. Kirkpatrick and Goodlett ended up paying um, like one of the attendants so that they could stand on the platform at the very back of the train. But they sat there the whole night and never got the signal to throw the cash over. Huh. What was the signal? They didn't say. I like oh. looked all over and I could not find out what the signal was. Oh, okay. It was probably like a gunfire or something. Yeah. Because they would have been standing. Going like, past a specific point. Point, yeah. Okay. And they would see something. Yeah, okay. That's what I assumed. Yeah. Uh, when they arrived to their designated hotel, a telegram was already there waiting on them that said, Unavoidable incident kept me from seeing you last night. We'll communicate about 6 p.m. Oh, they got a call to their room from a man that called himself Moore, and he told them to take a walk in the direction of the LaSalle Hotel with the package. Yeah, just take a walk. Just take a walk, babe. It's all right. <laughs> okay. So, once Kirkpatrick met up with the kidnapper on the street, he noticed that Kelly was being really jumpy and antsy, and he reached over and grabbed the cash from Kirkpatrick. Okay. Kirkpatrick demanded some reassurance that Charles Urschel was alive, and George Kelly told him that they could expect Charles home in about 12 hours. Then he disappeared into the traffic. Huh. Meanwhile, Catherine was back home in paradise at the farm, and she was starting to get worried after George and Al were gone for two days. Because they should have been back by now. George and Al finally got home, but shortly after driving, or I'm sorry, shortly after dividing the cash, things started going a little south. Oh, okay. Catherine and Al said that there was no way that they could just let Charles Urschel walk free because he would give them up to the feds immediately. But George Kelly didn't want to kill an innocent man, especially since they seemingly managed to pull the whole scheme off. Yeah. And they got their cash. What's the point of the... Of killing him. She was like, (laughs) I don't want to kill him. So, George managed to convince the two accomplices not to murder Urschel, since they planned on making three more kidnapping jobs, and there was no way they would would get the cash from those three if they killed killed him. Yeah, if they killed him. They're like, we're not going to give you the cash. You killed the the other guy. No. Yeah, because if you're just going to kill him anyway, Mm -hmm. we're not giving you any money. (laughs) What? Exactly. Okay. Al took his money and peaced out. Uh, he, he ran away to Denver, Colorado, because he didn't want anything to do with the schemes and definitely didn't want to be there if they killed Urschel or let him walk free. Yeah. The Kelly stuck Urschel in the back seat with sunglasses over his eyes, <laughs> tied his blindfold. <laughs> Can you imagine? And they drove the back roads to Oklahoma City and dropped him about 20 miles outside the city limits, close to a town called Norman, and just sped off. Okay. They just dropped him off. Yep. Middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. Bye. All right. The Kellys then drove north overnight to St. Paul, Minnesota, where George's criminal contacts helped them launder their dirty money, and they did a little shopping to celebrate the score. They're all over the place. Yep. In the middle of the country. They're from, like, Texas to Oklahoma to to Minnesota. Yep. (laughs) All the way up and down. Uh, We get to Ohio in a second. Oh, shit. Catherine got a new fur coat and an $1,100 diamond bracelet, and George got himself a brand new caddy. Wow. In Cleveland. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, at my mom's, which I still have, or actually Kylie has it, but at my mom's first job, she saved up her money, and the first thing she bought was a fur coat. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was going to get, but I was like, I'm never going to wear this. Kylie might, so. But Kylie, Kylie would definitely it. wear a fur coat. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's funny. So, it was in Cleveland that they got the news that some of George's contacts were apprehended by the feds back in Minnesota. So Catherine told him that they stay on the move so they wouldn't be captured, too. Yeah, you gotta keep moving. They drove the new caddy through Chicago, then kept going on to Des Moines, Iowa, where they planned on crashing for the night. Des Moines. Des Moines? It's not Des Moines? No. Des Moines? <laughs> oh, fuck. That's okay. <laughs> We're in Iowa. We're in Iowa now. Uh. This is when they got another round of bad news and found out that Catherine's parents had been arrested by the feds because apparently Charles spilled all the tea about his kidnapping by the Kellys. Well, yeah. I mean, they were left to babysit a a man. Yeah. (laughs) And Charles has an immaculate memory and attention to detail. And he was able to describe smells, noises, and rough locations that he had heard muffled through his earplugs. And the feds were able to use all that information he gave to narrow down their search. Okay. And when they contacted police in Texas, they pointed them towards the ranch in Paradise on tips from Officer Weatherford, who had a hunch that the Kellys were involved. 
back to our undercover cop friend. Yep. Okay. So, the FBI arranged a raid on the ranch on August 11th, taking Charles Urschel with them. Oh, okay. Cool. Urschel recognized the voice of Boss and identified him as one of the watchmen. Yeah. Boss's son ended up spilling all the tea, and officers made their arrest of everyone on the ranch. The Dallas field office was keeping an eye on all the all the mail going through the ranch so they could find out where the Kellys were hiding out. Yeah. So they got everybody except for mm-hmm. okay. the Kellys. Yep. The trail was hot, and the best lead that the FBI got was from a bill for that new fancy Cadillac the Kellys had just purchased. Yeah. And they had been closer on their tails than they had been in days. Yeah. Okay. Catherine was furious. I bet she was. And she blamed George for his sloppy work and not wanting to murder Charles Urschel. Yeah, you stupid man. Why didn't you just kill him? <laughs> yeah, why didn't you just do whatever because I told Because if they, you? they had, they wouldn't be in the hole they were in now, and they were quickly getting backed into a corner. Yeah, that's very true. Mm-hmm. Catherine told Charles they needed to go back to Texas to help her mother, Aura. Okay. Catherine told Charles he could make it up to her by taking the fall for the entire crime if they got caught. <laughs> and he agreed. <laughs> I know, this man is dumb. If we got cut, and it's so funny because I know his name have had never heard of her. Yeah, exactly. And she's the mastermind. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Catherine George stopped by Catherine's uncle's house in Coleman, Texas, while they were on route to paradise, and buried the ransom haul in his backyard behind a barn. <sighs> Catherine went into town and bought a junker of a car, left the junker with George and her uncle. They're gonna get caught. Everyone else has been caught. They're going down. Maybe. You don't know that. Oh, oh I'm just kidding. They get caught. (laughs) She then went with... I still don't know how it ends, so I'm excited. She then went with the caddy to Dallas to hire a lawyer for her mother, but while she was gone, the FBI rolled into town to question Catherine's uncle and other members of her family, so George took off and left a note for Catherine that said, Mississippi. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we're going down south. (laughs) Catherine's even more pissed now and just blaming George for the entire thing. Yeah. Later that month, Catherine wrote a letter to the DA in charge of her mother's case and promised that she would give up the whereabouts of Machine Gun Kelly if they agreed to release her mother. Huh. So she's going to turn him in just to to get get her her mom out. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. The letter was post-stamped in Chicago, but after sending the letter, Catherine headed back into Texas, bought a wig, and checked into a Hilton. All right. Our girl, she loves the dramatic. She's all over the place. She loves it. (laughs) Catherine tried to call her mother's lawyer in Fort Worth, but when she finally reached his office, he told her not to contact him and hung up the phone immediately. Okay. Because they're probably, they probably are watching his office waiting for her to call. Oh, yeah. 100%. So she got into the car and headed towards Fort Worth to talk to the lawyer in person since he refused to take her calls. While they were on the way to Fort Worth, Catherine passed a family named the Arnolds who were hitchhiking. And they had the the cutest fucking names. So we have Luther, Flossie Mae, and 12-year-old Geraldine. Flossie May and Geraldine. Yep. Okay. So the family had come into really hard financial times and lost their farm due to foreclosure. So they were roaming around Texas looking for any work that was available. And Catherine has driven past them. Yep. And picks them up. Okay. Catherine pulled over and picked up the Arnolds. And after building some rapport with the family, she was able to get Luther Arnold to agree to be the middleman between her and her mother's attorney so she could find out what was going on. All right. Just literally just some random person off the street. She's quick on her feet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nest text on the list was finding her husband, George, and heading back to Coleman, Texas. Yeah. Okay. Much to the dismay of Flossie May, Catherine took 12-year-old uh, Geraldine with her to help her blend in as a normal mother while she was out searching for... So she's going to pretend like that's her daughter. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. She finally got reunited um, with her husband at her uncle's farm back in Coleman. And after being separated for two weeks on the run, the first thing she said to George was, I don't know if I should kiss you or kill you. Oh, well. <laughs> or slap you across the face. <laughs> yeah. For being stupid. Yes. The couple took Geraldine to Chicago and did everything they could to stay under the radar and get help from George's shady contacts. But no one wanted to help the couple since anyone caught aiding the couple was going to face federal charges. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's no get. And this case and she's going to so... throw anyone under the bus. Absolutely. Even people who weren't involved, yeah. she's going to take them out. <laughs> uh, realizing that they couldn't get any help in Chicago, the fugitives and Geraldine headed to Memphis, Tennessee, where George had a hideout and a few more contacts he could potentially get help from. Okay. 
This is so convoluted. I know. It takes so much work to it's be like a criminal. That, it reminds me of that uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> meme with the guy standing in front of the board and he's like pointing to all the things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what this is. Yeah. Once they reached Memphis, they met up with George's acquaintance, Langford, and he told Langford he was the machine gun Kelly. Oh, okay. They just know him as George. Yeah. That's just George Kelly. Oh. Mm-hmm. Huh. Langford was sent to Coleman with Geraldine to retrieve the ransom money. Also, poor Geraldine, she's just getting passed from stranger to stranger. On <laughs> she this, doesn't like, know anything. She's like, what the people. fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so once they got to the uncle's house, he was turned away because the FBI was still hot on the trail and he thought his home was being surveyed. Yeah. The uncle told Langford to split while he could. He had to send a telegram to alert the Kellys, as well as drop off Geraldine to the train station so she could meet up with her parents again because she was crying and pleading with Langford about how much she was missing them. Yeah. She's a child. <laughs> She's 12. <laughs> oh, my God. Geraldine sent a quick telegram to her mother, who was supposed to be in Oklahoma City, but unfortunately, Flossie May had already been picked up by the FBI and they intercepted the message. Wow. Mm-hmm. So she was barely involved in it, and then, whoop, scooped up by the FBI. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh. Geraldine was picked up by the FBI at the train station when she arrived, and she told them exactly where the Kellys could be found hiding out. Yeah. She's it's like, like they're she's over there. invested in these people. No. Why not she's just like, turn them in? like, fuck them. They're over there. Yeah. They essentially kidnapped me. Yeah. <laughs> On September 26th, authorities raided the Kellys' hideout in Memphis, Tennessee, and they were both arrested in their PJs. Wow. Isn't that cute? Yeah, that mm-hmm. is fun. Before being arrested, Catherine put her arms around George and said, Sorry, honey, I guess it's all up for us because the G-men won't never give us a break. Well, I mean, <laughs> you, you kidnapped somebody. You're a kidnapper. Yeah. <laughs> what? Catherine, uh, being Catherine, asked officers if she could get dressed in proper clothes before heading into the station and emerged 15 minutes later wearing a black silk dress and all dolled up, makeup and everything. And she made it well known that she wasn't looking quite her best because all her good clothes were in Texas. Oh, so the public loved the whole, like, show Catherine was putting on for yeah. them, and she was treated her perp walks like she was, like, going out of the red carpet in Hollywood. Oh, I'm sure. She was yeah. strutting. She fucking loved it. <laughs> and uh, when she took the stand on trial, this was her story. Okay. The kidnapping was entirely George's idea, and she had no idea what was going on with that crime or any of the other crimes he committed, and thought he was just making his money betting on horse races. Okay. Unfortunately, the jury did not buy Catherine's story, and she was still found guilty. Yeah, she was the mastermind. Yeah. He didn't really do anything. (laughs) No, he just did what she told him to do. Yeah. (laughs) George's attorneys refused to let him on the stand, knowing he would just take the fall for Catherine given the chance, but the couple got identical sentences and received life in prison. Wow. In 1954, George Kelly died in prison at the age of 54. Huh. Okay. Okay. Catherine appealed her sentence several times over the years, and she was finally granted a retrial with her mother in 1958, and both were released based on, like, a handwriting technicality, and they lived the rest of their lives in Oklahoma. Okay. I know. Isn't that wild? (laughs) She still got out. Was the mom, she was in with her? Her mom. Well, they were in the same jail. Oh. Okay. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. All right. So, in popular culture, it's George Kelly who gets the credit and brains for the crimes they committed together. Yeah. But in reality, it was Catherine, and George was just like her little puppet. Wow. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. But it just makes me chuckle that a 12-year-old is what got them caught. Because she was like, they're over there. Go get them. <laughs> well, yeah. So, wait. Hold on. Who was murdered? Nobody. They didn't murder anybody. Okay, I thought there was a murder. They wanted, uh, so Catherine Kelly wanted to murder Urschel, but George would not let her. Okie dokie. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh-huh. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> a little lighter. That was wild. I know. Gangsters. Hold on, I'll find, look up some fun facts about prohibition. <gasps> yeah. Yay. So he, he really didn't do anything. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, he still he kidnapped of... them, but, like, yeah, he, he didn't wasn't want the mas- to kill them. He wasn't the mastermind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So these are some surprising facts you didn't know about Prohibition. Okay, let's do it. The most popular alcohol of choice back then was bathtub gin, <laughs> a.k.a. moonshine. <laughs> okay. Uh, moonshine's um, great. Yeah, but because it, you know, was made in a bathtub or bathroom or whatever, it was often unsanitary and it got a lot of people sick. Yeah. Besides getting drunk. 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, the government was said to have poisoned industrial alcohol that was being sold by bootleggers in order to scare people into sobriety. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, one state that never bothered to follow the prohibition rules was Maryland, and they never enforced it. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I at, wonder if there was an influx of people who moved there. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. Huh, weird. Um, at the time, Maryland Senator William Cabell Bruce admitted national prohibition went illegal effect upward of six years ago. But it can truly be said that, except to a highly qualified extent, it has never gone into practical effect at all. Huh. And other states eventually followed their lead. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, some legal loopholes existed for people to continue drinking, uh, like the Volstead Act made it possible for doctors to offer medicinal whiskey for a variety of ailments. Okay. There you go. Mm-hmm. A lot of people had to go to the doctor all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, dive bars were called blind pigs. Oh. I only want to call it that from now on. Yeah. It's called a blind pig. There's a couple um, of bars that I believe i've been to because pigs are kylie's favorite animal mm-hmm. so anytime we go anywhere where there's a pig involved yep. we have to yeah. go <laughs> but we've been to a couple blind pigs it's awesome yeah that's fun how long did it last um what do you mean like called dive no prohibition the prohibition yeah like six years i think well not not even a full decade i don't think yeah okay prohibition inspired booze cruises yeah yeah, yeah they did <laughs> it's the only amendment to be appealed i'm oh, sorry repealed yeah Right. Good deal. I know. I love it. Fucking great. Yeah. That was nice and lighthearted. Yeah. And Catherine, the story's really about her. She is. She's she's the boss. Yeah. Oh my goodness. She has bad bitch and she has big boob energy. (laughs) She does. Yes, she does. And she has no problem telling all the men in her life what to do. And her mother. Yep. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, I have to go home and take care of baby Newt. Newt. And I have to go to work. We, we're cutting it real close. <laughs> uh, but before you go, follow us on Instagram. Yeah. At hashtag murderpod. Spell it all out. Spell it all out. <laughs> also, thank you for everyone that's bought a cup so far. We are going to order more cups. Yeah. So if you are on the wait list, yours will be coming shortly. Yeah. We've only got uh, two left, I two think. Left. So, so if, if you, you want, want those one. two. Let us Let know. Us know. <laughs> um, local delivery be- will be by yours truly. Yeah. So, yay! Mm-hmm. Um, and if you like this, give us five stars and share us to all your friends. Yeah, I don't see why not. It really helps us. And if you want another Dusty Ones episode, (laughs) just let us know. Just let us know. I actually really liked that one, and I want to do one with Harley really bad. Yeah. Oh, that'll be fun. Yes. She's going to have no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) No. Well, Uh, she requested the one that that I wrote up for her, so we can do that one with her. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. That's exciting. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, I got to get to work, so thanks for hanging out. Love you. Bye. Bye. Alcohol is fun. Don't like illegal it. <laughs> Don't illegal it. <laughs> Don't illegal it. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Murder. Episodes are written and edited by Alex Lewis and Scarlett Hipton. Our intro and outro music is written and played by Derek Branton. Our cover art is by the lovely Lauren Walker. And our name was created by the most wonderful, supportive, and super hot boyfriend, Dustin Branton. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or ideas, you can reach us at hashtag murderpod at gmail.com. That's H-A-S-H-T-A-G murderpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to tell all of your friends about us. Thanks. Bye. Holy shit, you are. Holy shit. Hello, it's me and not Dusty Buns. Yay. Thank you all for missing me. Even if you didn't. (laughs) I'm back. She's back, bitches. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hold on. Let me touch this. Oh, there we go. There we go. There's a murder. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yep. I'm trying to like figure out who it is this whole time. I have no idea. Oh, I lost my place. I hate when that not that that much meant that. Charles ate. Sorry. Now I'm the one interrupting to call fucking (laughs) Dusty Bug. We interrupted this podcast to make a special message for Dusty Buns. <laughs> Hi, honey. Um, can you pause the sprinkler until we're done? <laughs> Thank you, honey. It's okay. I love you, honey. <laughs> uh, okie dokie. Okay. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Catherine loved hotel lit. Oh, nope. I already did Ooh. that. This made Catherine feel even more sophisticated. Or, I'm sorry. Trawler. All right. Uh, when she...
us to Myrtle Urschel, since they planned on making three more kidnapping jobs. Wait, Myrtle? <laughs> Myrtle. Myrtle them. <laughs> Myrtle them. <that> <laughs> the FBI arranged a raid on the ranch. And a ranch. 